Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining. I'm Paul Shari, Senior Fellow here at the Center for New American Security. And I'm very excited to welcome you to today's book discussion with Wesley Morgan, author of The Hardest Place, The American Military Adrift in Afghanistan's Pesh Valley. Wesley Morgan is a military affairs reporter who recently covered the Pentagon for two and a half years at Politico. He has previously worked as a freelance journalist in Washington, D.C., Iraq, and Afghanistan, contributing stories to the Washington Post, New York Times, The Atlantic, and other outlets. He is the author of a fabulous new book that we're here to talk about today. Uh, Wes, welcome, and thank you for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Um, you've written a fantastic book. Uh, here it is. Uh, it is really quite a read. Um, can we get a, a shot up on the screen here of it? All right, so you can see uh, folks that to hear the cover in more detail. Um, the book is, uh, let me just say, it is hefty. Uh, the book is available in all formats, so hardcover, ebook, audiobook, everywhere books are sold. Uh, but if you get it in hardcover, you know, even before you crack the cover, there's this visceral sense of the scale of the war um, when you're looking at the book. Um, you know, so this is quite an accomplishment, and congratulations on the book's release this week. Thanks, Paul. Yeah, it's been an exciting week. Uh, it's been, this book has been a long time coming. Um, I want to start by asking, what is the hardest place? Sure. So the place that the book is about is called the Petch Valley. It's a, a valley system in Kunar and Nuristan provinces in northeastern Afghanistan. Uh, the Petch is a river that flows down from Nuristan uh, into Kunar. Um, and it, the Petch is this, uh, it's, a, it's a very steep valley. It's got a sort of a thin, narrow valley floor with arable land. Um, and many of the towns are down along that arable floor. And then from the mountains, various smaller rivers uh, flow down into the Petch and join it as tributaries. And some of these places are more infamous than the Petch itself is. For example, the Korengal Valley um, is a place that for a time there, you know, a decade ago, was almost like a, a shorthand for Afghanistan in popular culture. You'd hear, uh, you'd hear Korengal as the stand-in for Afghanistan in video games, in movies, in House of Cards, um, because it was a place that... Uh, for a period of time, was it was infamously deadly for U.S. troops. Uh, a lot of embedded reporters had gone there, um, taking really striking footage and imagery from this place. Because um, something that's that's unusual about the Petch Valley and its and its environs in Kunar and Nuristan is that uh, it's it's strikingly wooded. There's um, there are big thick forests up in this place. So uh, the the title of the hardest place is uh, from a quote from. General David McKiernan, who was one of the four-star commanders who oversaw the whole U.S. effort in Afghanistan over the years. And he, along with many others, um, would single out this part of the country as just one of the toughest places to operate in for U.S. troops for a variety of reasons. Um, one of them being the, just the terrain and the vegetation. It's jagged. It's hard to land helicopters. It's hard to operate drones. Weather keeps aircraft grounded. Uh, and then also it's... Um, uh, in the same way that the physical terrain has been is magnified the difficulties for U.S. troops in Afghanistan in this place, um, so as what the military would call the human terrain. It's a complex area. Um, people on the valley valley floor speak Pashto. Um, people up in the in the side valleys, in some cases, speak um, just com completely different languages that don't have a written form and are probably on their way out, but still exist um, and were very very tricky for U.S. troops to 
uh, to penetrate um, because just, just finding an interpreter who speaks Koringali or Tregami um, or Kalasha Allah, some of these languages is very, very difficult, um, let alone one that you can trust not to drag you into local disputes or, or play you in some way. Um, yeah, the terrain itself is almost like its own character in the book and is, and is such a big part of this. And what I'm going to ask um, Megan to do is maybe put up some pictures um, that we have while we're discussing so people can see for themselves um, some photos that are from the book. I want to ask you though, Wes, you know, there's this theme that runs through your book that I'd like to draw out, um, which is why are U.S. troops in the Pesh? Why go to this place that is in some ways the ends of the earth? Yeah. Um, I mean, that was actually kind of the question that motivated me to write the book in the first place. Um, over 10 years ago, I spent, uh, I spent some time with a, an infantry battalion from the 101st Airborne Division that was living in the patch, 700 guys spread out among four outposts. And the thing that was really striking to me at that time in 2010 um, was that, you know, we understood broadly in some sense why we were in Afghanistan. It's because of 9-11 and it's evolved into this, you know, twin counterterrorism and counterinsurgency missions. But um, U.S. forces had been in that particular part of the country for so long that the origins of these little bases was almost lost in the mists of history, even though really it had only been a few years. Um, but because of the way that U.S. forces rotate constantly every six months or 12 months or 15 months, just the origins of these bases would get lost. You know, you'd be at a place like Cop, Michigan, at the mouth of the Corongal Valley. And, you know, of course, it's not the business of the, the soldiers who are defending this place and patrolling from it to understand the, you know, the history behind what brought them there. But, you know, even the company commander, um, even sometimes the interpreters who've been there for longer than the company commander, uh, wouldn't really be able to tell you exactly when or why this base, this particular base was established. Um, so I, I just, I was really interested by that um, and decided I wanted to kind of pull that thread and rewind and figure out how each of these bases had started out. Um, and what, what you see happen is uh, U.S. forces went up to this part of the country uh, with, with a very narrow mission in the spring of 2002. They were trying to figure out where bin Laden had gone uh, after the December 2001 Battle of Tora Bora, where he'd escaped U.S. bombing. Um, so, you know, some of the most elite secretive parts of the U.S. military, um, the Joint Special Operations Command, the CIA went up there. And that's what brought you up there uh, as, a, as, a, as a Ranger private um, was, you know, as part of that effort. Uh, but very quickly after those forces and that task force that you were part of kind of moved on to bigger things, the war in Iraq, for instance, um, other forces were left behind. Other special operations forces, Green Berets were left with some of these bases. Uh, then conventional forces inherited them. And so along the way, there are just these little increments by which the mission changes, um, sometimes as a result of big decisions made in Washington and Kabul. Uh, and other times as a result of, you know, fairly small seeming decisions at the time made by captains and majors and lieutenant colonels and colonels, uh, but that wind up having very outsized effects um, as, uh, as these changes accumulate uh, and the, the war of rotation continues. Early on in the book, there's a story of these two ODAs, Green Beret A-teams, um, who are up in the valley and it is in many ways the start of where things begin to kind of go wrong in the past. Can you talk about that? Sure. So in the fall of 2003, um, the Ranger Regiment, which, you know, your old unit, did, did, a, did a big operation up into Kunar and Nuristan, uh, trying to figure out, it was, it was another effort to try to catch, you know, pick up bin Laden's trail. And it was fruitless. It was called Operation Winter Strike. It didn't really turn anything up. Um, 
it just was a you know a big muscle movement for the Ranger Regiment and the Joint Special Operations Command that didn't result in much, but it left behind a base. Um, it was named after uh, a second battalion ranger named Jay Blessing, who was killed during the operation. So there was this base that was established in the in the fall of 2003, just as a essentially as a launching point to help you know get helicopters and trucks and stuff into Nuristan during this operation. But then once the operation was over, the base was still there. And the Green Beret Task Force in Afghanistan essentially raised its hand and volunteered and said, you know, we can make something out of this place. Uh, we can raise a local indigenous force here um, to help secure the place. Well, well, the Afghan National Army is still starting to come online in Kabul because there really was no Afghan National Army to speak of yet. Um, so a Green Beret team winds up at this little base, uh, which is called Camp Blessing after this fallen ranger. Um, and it's a, it's a group of, you know, about 12 guys um, uh, from the 19th Special Forces Group. So they're, they're guys from Utah. They're actually National Guardsmen. Uh, so not, not full-time active duty Green Berets, although many of them have done that previously before going into National Guard. So they spend six months in the Valley, this National Guard team. And then they're replaced by another Green Beret team, an active duty team from 3rd Special Forces Group at Fort Bragg. And what you see between these two teams um, is something that plays out over and over again in different ways uh, in the story of the patch and in the story of Afghanistan, where you've got two units that look identical on paper. They've got, you know, the same organization, the guys in the, in the different jobs have all gone to the same schools and had similar experiences in many ways, but they actually, they take completely different approaches to how they, how they live and work in this valley. The National Guard team, um, uh, it, it embraces what we come to think of later as the, you know, the counterinsurgency strategy, FM324, population center counterinsurgency. Basically, they restrict themselves to um, the towns where people live, the main, the main town um, called Nangalam that Camp Blessing is located by. And they try to just build up this local force and create a sense of security in a little bubble around this town, um, what, you know, the counterinsurgency theorists of the mid-20th century would have called a, an, an, ink, spot, an ink, ink spot. Um, and so that's what this little team does. And it's not, it's not glamorous work. They don't get into a ton of firefights or anything like that. Um, then the third group team rotates in um, and it's been reading all the, all the human intelligence reports that the 19th group team has been collecting and you know, sending up, up the chain of command. And the third group team's perspective is, you guys haven't been going after the enemy. You've been focusing on this, you, you, you've been focusing on this little bubble and allowing this, a, a cancer to grow nearby allowing the enemy to kind of live unmolested and, and do their thing. Um, and they, they start to focus on a valley called the Korengal Valley, um, which is one of the side valleys of the Pesh. Um, and it's one where U.S. troops, uh, essentially starting, largely starting with this third group team, uh, get sucked into a, a timber war um, between the Korengalis and outside parties uh, who are responsible for exporting their, their valuable cedar wood um, over the border to Pakistan. So the third group team, it keeps getting reports that, you know, the Korngal is where the bad guys are. That's where you got to go to find the bad guys. So they, they just start they just start going in there and, and fighting. Um, and it becomes uh, there's this, there's a momentum to this where uh, by late 2004, when this team leaves and, you know, essentially the, the Green Berets hand things over to conventional Marines, um, the ball is rolling. These new Marines don't know anything about what the 19th group team had been doing six months earlier. Um, they just know that. The Korengal is where the Korengal is where the fight is, um, 
and that's that is essentially the the beginning of what becomes this uh, very emblematic um, struggle uh, for U.S. forces in Afghanistan, uh, where the U.S. and the Taliban, neither of which are local parties to the Korangal conflict, both are sucked into it, and the Korangal becomes this arena um, in which they duke it out to at great cost to both sides. Well, and what's you know part of the tragedy of U.S. involvement in the past is that. The U.S. ends up wrapped up in what you can see is this really bloody local insurgency. There are, you know, foreign fighters, Taliban come later, but originally it's not about foreign fighters. It's not about Al-Qaeda. It's about, you know, local Afghans. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that dynamic and kind of how that unfolds. Sure. I mean, so something that's interesting about Kunar and the Pech is that it's not the, you know, the southern Pashtun heartland of the Taliban. The Taliban had... That it controlled the provincial capital before 9-11, but really the Taliban had a very weak hold on Kunar. It was not native to the province. Um, it, many, many local actors were still resisting the Taliban. Um, so it's not like it's not like there was a, a kind of a built-in network of Taliban insurgents who immediately started fighting Americans when they showed up. Uh, it took it took several years, in fact, for the Taliban to really arrive in the province um, and, and take the reins of what had become this, you know, this native insurgency uh, of local actors fighting the United States for various reasons. Um, and often these reasons had to do with mistakes that the United States had made. Um, US forces had detained the wrong people, killed the wrong people, acted on tips that turned out to have been motivated by, you know, in, in bad faith by uh, people they were relying on for information who used them to settle conflicts. Um, and so it actually takes a number of years for some of the figures who become Taliban commanders in the valley, there's a guy named Mullah Dauran who was eventually killed in a drone strike in 2013, but who for years and years was kind of a, one of the main local commanders fighting the Americans in the valley. He had fought against the Taliban before 9-11. Um, he had briefly dabbled in, uh, you know, being part of the, the, the new government post 9-11, as did many strongmen in the province. Um, but by 2003, he was fighting the United States. Um, and it wasn't, in fact, until 2010 that he formally uh, formally joined forces with the Taliban. Um, and and think stories like that play out throughout the province. Uh, the Taliban starts coming in and taking more and taking charge more and more, providing funding, providing weapons, providing training. Um, but it, really, you see a patchwork of little local resistance groups um, fighting the United States who then receive this support from outside actors like the Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's interesting reading it is there's almost this palpable sense of like a gravitational pull that sort of gets underway early in the war where, you know, the Americans are there because they're people you know, that shoot at them and they've been trained to run to the sound of the guns, right? Whether it's, you know, the third group team or the Marines that follow them or others. And so, you know, people, shoot, you know, they're going to go deep in the valley. They're going to attack. And then the people are fighting because the Americans are there. Right. It's just it's like this combustible mix that kind of happens. Um, I'd be curious to your take on kind of how that dynamic begins to unfold. So um, some of the things to keep in mind here are one, how easy it was for U.S. troops in the early years to just get up and go do things without a whole lot of checking in with higher headquarters. You know, the war eventually evolves into a, a heavily centralized uh, structure where, you know, to just to get outside the wire within the past few years and go on a patrol, units have to submit, you know, very long PowerPoint slide decks way up their chain of command, get approved by generals and so on. This wasn't the case in 2003, 2004, 2005. 
um, teams would just get up and go. They might send a five W's update, you know, who, what, where, when, why, um, to, to alert their higher headquarters to what they were doing. But really it was just, uh, it was get up and go, you know, make a job for yourself, make yourself useful. Um, so the bar to start something was very low. Uh, and this uh, applies even to the construction of bases and outposts. Um, you know, it, 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 it turned out to be much, much easier to build a base than to unbuild a base. Um, so what once, you know, an, an outpost that gets started is just a little small encampment that nobody thinks is gonna be there for very long. Within a few years, it's kind of a, it's a little fortress um, that it's a major logistical operation to get rid of. Uh, and often one that requires the sign off of a you know, four-star ISAF commander or his two-star deputy. Um, so you get bases that were, were built kind of at the, the drop of a hat, then become, you know, there's a year-long process, decision-making process to decide whether to pull out of them uh, to, and to line up the resources to do so. Um, so there's, there's a momentum that, uh, there's a momentum toward expansion and toward action and toward going out and doing things um, that, it was hard to turn off. Well, I think this point you make about this momentum towards action is it comes out so, so um, obvious in the book where it's like the, the instinct of the commanders is when in doubt to do something. Sure. And that seems to run into a lot of challenges in the past where there are situations where the best thing might be to not do things. Um, and yet that's their instinct is to, is to take more action. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you can understand why it is this way, right? I mean, these are, uh, you know, infantry commanders who are, are, are brought up in a system where to not act uh, can be disastrous. I mean, you're, you're fighting a war, you have to act. Um, that's, that's, how, that's how these kinds of units operate. Um, there's a guy named David Katz, who was a foreign service officer who spent a bunch of time up in, up in Nuristan, both during the war and actually years and years ago as well as a, as a doctoral student in the 1970s doing his field research. Um, but he wound up working closely with the military in some of these places. Uh, and the thing that was incredibly frustrating to him was, you know, he could see that these societies are so complex. You know, U.S. forces, everything you do, uh, it has effects. Just, you know, knocking on somebody's door, talking to somebody, sends a message about that person to other people. Nothing you, nothing you do is inconsequential. But it's, it's so, so hard to predict what the consequences of your actions will be. And so as this guy, David Katz, put it, uh, sometimes the more you understand about the place, the, the more you realize that you just have no idea what the consequences of anything you're doing are. Um, and for, for, for military commanders who are, who are steeped in the idea of needing to act uh, and needing to act quickly and decisively, um, it, it, those, that's a, it's a very contrary mindset. They, these things just don't fit well. It can be very, very difficult to kind of to justify just, well, I... I don't understand what's, what this is going to do, so I'm not going to do it. That's not how, that's not how these guys are, are trained to think. Right. Nor, nor is that really seen as an acceptable answer to their leadership. Right. Yeah. So there's this, you know, it's, it's a long war. The, the American involvement deepens over a period of several years um, where there are these kind of bases that you're describing that can incrementally build deeper and deeper into the valleys. What if you could describe kind of how that process unfolds over time, pulling U.S. troops in some cases, like really far deep into these, some of these offshoots of the passion. Yeah. So every one of these little outposts that gets built has its own origin story. Um, and, you know, by the time that each of these bases has been there for a while and is just, you know, it's like a fishbowl in the valley floor and it's being attacked every day. It's very easy for the troops at, at each given outpost to just think, you know, what kind of idiot built this base? I mean, is it just to get us killed? Um, but of course, that 
is not the case in, in any one of these outpost stories. I mean, they, they were built for a reason, good or bad, by somebody that wasn't just, I'm going to put American troops in danger. Um, and often it had to do with um, trying to figure out tr- tr- hunting enemy leaders. Um, there's uh, the Weigel Valley north of the Pech is a place where the U.S. built its most remote outpost in the region. Um, places that, you know, troops who rotated in later almost would find it unbelievable that there were outposts um, just way, way up in these incredibly remote towns uh, that could only be supplied by helicopter, you know, 20 guys perched on a mountainside. Uh, and in 2006, when a lot of these outposts were built um, after the initial ones in, in 2003, um, uh, a lot of it had to do with uh, a, a big operation that the 10th Mountain Division launched in the spring of 2006, um, part of whose underlying uh, reasoning was that if you spread out farther uh, and go into more and more communities, you'll be able to collect more and more intelligence. Uh, and this will allow you to figure out where enemy leaders have gone, who both the military and the intelligence community, the CIA, are looking for. Um, so that was, that's part of the underlying logic that drove pushing out into these incredibly remote places. Uh, but a- as the story unfolds, there kind of isn't really follow through. These outposts don't produce intelligence in the way that uh, was kind of imagined that they might. Uh, but once they outlive that purpose, the outpost is still there and very difficult to get rid of. So as the U.S. deepens its reach into these valleys, they end up with, as you described, these outposts in these really remote places you know, inaccessible, some of them inaccessible by road, only accessible by helicopter, um, which even, you know, airlifts obviously critical to U.S. operations in Afghanistan, but, you know, it has weather problems and other things. Um, and some of these end up in just these really indefensible locations. Um, and then there are some disasters that then unfold. I wonder if you could talk about some of these incidents that occur uh, or some of these outposts are attacked. Sure. Yeah, so this part of the country, um, you know, the Afghan East in general is where you'll see massed attacks against U.S. outposts over the course of the war. And the highest density of these attacks, these kind of almost Vietnam style enemy trying to get inside the wire, uh, you know, overwhelm the defenses, try and drag somebody away. Uh, the bulk of these out, of these events happen in Kunar and Nuristan, including several in the Petch Valley and its tributaries. Um, the first one, which nobody really remembers, uh, is in the, in the fall of 2004 with the second of these two Green Beret teams to live at Fob Blessing. It endured a series of very serious massed attacks against Camp Blessing, which then was a very small base, uh, which luckily didn't result in any Americans being killed uh, and kind of are just sort of forgotten in the annals of the war. But they are a little bit, they're foreshadowing of what's to come as more and more of these little bases um, spread out. There's another one, the Battle of Combat Maine in the fall of 2006, where a little outpost that the 10th Mountain Division guys have built gets just absolutely slammed. Um, you know, everybody pinned down all the heavy weapons uh, out of commission, radios out of commission. Uh, and again, it's just, it's kind of by luck that no American is killed and it doesn't, you know, it doesn't make headlines. It doesn't come into the news, uh, but eventually luck runs out. Um, and there are a series of these events in 2007 and 2008. There's one in, uh, in, in August of 2007, the ranch house outpost in the town of Iran's way, way up in the Weigel Valley, the most remote one of these outposts. Um, uh, is attacked in a mass assault. The enemy does, in fact, get inside the wire, take control of some of the perimeter towers. Um, again, amazingly, no American is killed, although quite a few are wounded. Uh, but this one acts as a wake-up call to start, you know, to, to motivate the unit that's in theater at the time, the 173rd Airborne Brigade, to start trying to close these places down, these ones that are that are just essentially untenable and have not lived up to the, the promise that they had been built for a year or two earlier. Um, 
And so it's actually in the course of this long withdrawal, because you can't just withdraw at the at the at the drop of a hat. Um, they, they pull out of the ranch house outpost, they pull out of Villa outpost next door, uh, but they don't want to precipitously leave the valley altogether for fear of how this will be perceived that it will look like a Taliban victory. Um, so what the unit does is it consolidates these two bases that it's closed and tries to build a new one that will be more sustainable and more, you know, easier to reinforce uh, in a place called Want. Um, and this outpost in its, in its construction phase, uh, before there's really much of it there, uh, gets hit really hard and nine Americans are killed in the space of a, an hour or two on a, the morning of July 13th, 2008. Um, and U.S. forces then do pull out and essentially the effect is the same as the one they were trying to avoid. Uh, you, you've, you've pulled out of the valley and in fact you've done so, um, it, the way it looks to local people is, is you've done so after having been bloodied pretty seriously um, and it, it looks like a defeat. And that's the way the battalion commander at the time, a guy named Colonel Bill Ostland, uh, who appears repeatedly through the book and through the annals of the Afghan war, uh, puts it, he says, um, it was a tactical victory for us on that day, um, and it was a strategic defeat. So I want to talk about what not in particular, and I'm gonna, I'll use the Americanized version, which you, you, you clarify in the book, it's not actually accurate, but I think people, if they've heard of it, will have heard of um, the Americanized version of not. So you know, the Battle of Wanat has drawn a lot of attention. It's been one, and what's fascinating reading the book is that it's, it doesn't, I mean, so your book provides this broader perspective situated in the Battle of Wanat, which has gotten a lot of attention and then the aftermath of it and the after action reviews and the disciplinary actions and other things, but you situate it kind of in the broader space of US involvement in the Pesh. And you kind of described how we get there, but what's fascinating reading it is there doesn't, putting this outpost at Wanat does not seem any more ill-conceived than anything else that anyone's doing at the time. Like right. it's, it seems equally like a, like it seems like a bad idea when you're reading it in part because you know where this is going as a reader, but also it's like these outposts are not a great idea at this point in time in the war, but it, you know, it almost looks like they just, that, that day just seemed unlucky relative to say all oh, some of these other attacks where they had been, you know, people inside the wire, but, uh, but no Americans have been killed. I just be curious in your perspective on that battle relative to other things going on at the time. Yeah. I mean, um, Wenat was a, a, a really tragic day, um, and it's it's a it's a situation that so that battle um, earned one of the forward observers who was there in a little observation post, last American living at this observation post, earned him a Medal of Honor. Um, there was a, another Medal of Honor awarded to another soldier in that same company uh, for another uh, another battle where a patrol was just completely overrun. Um, so. Uh, these, these, there's, you know, these kinds of these events, uh, they produce these tremendous, the tremendous numbers of valor awards, and they kind of they give you the sense that um, when that many valor awards are coming out of the out of a place, something has gone wrong, and and that's the perspective that the 173rd Airborne Brigade take brigade guys take to it is that, um, yeah, I mean, the ferocity of this fighting that's uh, producing these valor awards really suggests that we have gone too far, we've stretched out too far, um, but so because the Battle of Wanat. Killed, so many Americans lost their lives in it. Um, it, it was a scandal. Um, and there were investigation after investigation into it, but always on, as you say, kind of the micro events of the battle itself and the days and at most weeks leading up to the battle. Um, you know, why was the company commander uh, physically present or not physically present? Why was the battalion commander physically present or not physically present? Was there enough water? Uh, did, did the M4s all work? Um, things like this, rather than um, kind, of, kind of lost in this was the bigger picture of 
how the unit had been put into a position where it was, uh, this was actually, it was almost, it's uh, the more palatable option was uh, this, this place, Wanat, was going to be more defensible uh, than, than the two outposts it, it had pulled out of. Um, so, yeah, I, try, I tried to place Wanat a little bit in this, uh, in this bigger picture of this could have happened at any number of outposts. It almost did happen at any number of outposts. It did happen with that body count at Wanat. And so Wanat, you know, was the one that resulted in headlines and investigations and recriminations um, and, and um, recommendations for charges of dereliction of duty. Um, but uh, it's just by, you know, by the grace of God that the, that the ranch house attack a year earlier hadn't ended the same way um, or the combat main attack in 2006. Um, you know, a, a very tiny, a very tiny thing uh, can, can sway one of these battles one way or the other. Yeah, the ranch house assault in particular was harrowing reading about it. That I'd, I'd certainly heard of Wanad and Kapkeating and, and other, you know, similar incidents. I'd never heard of ranch house because in part, um, you know, they, they've been relatively fortunate in terms of the, although you said a number of people have been injured, but it's, I mean, people inside the wire and it was just, it's just, a, uh, a lot of these are very, very harrowing firefights. Um, you know, you were talking about a lot of the, heroism and bravery by the soldiers and Marines and special operators in this area. Um, and then there's this reality. There are also some major leadership failures by military leaders. Um, and there's this quote that you have in the book that you kind of touched on a minute ago, but I wanted to read it because it really jumped out at me. You said, when soldiers on the ground are put into positions where they commit acts of desperate heroism, something has gone wrong. Um, can you tell us a little bit about like, what are, some of those operational failures by the army that put service members into these environments? Yeah. Um, so I think very often they were less um, big, obvious failures than kind of incremental failures to adapt to the situation. Um, the army's kind of inability to, um, or un unwillingness to almost audit these outposts uh, before something bad happened uh, and to, and see whether, you know, these outposts still were preserving, you know, serving the functions for which they'd been sent up there. I think is one of the big failures. Um, and the, the failure in, in 2006 um, of the units that went up there to foresee that these outposts would not be as difficult, as easy to shut down as they had been to build. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not an uncommon story. This was already happening in Iraq all over the place. You build an outpost, that outpost is there. Um, uh, so I think yeah, one, of, one of the failures is just the, is, is the, the failure to understand the cost of acting uh, and how difficult it will be to, to roll back the things that you're doing. Um, another is the the failure to learn about uh, what ta some tactics that just seem like they don't really work, um, but that often appear to work in the context of an individual unit's deployment. So one phenomenon that happens over and over again is there are battalions that will do these big helicopter-borne air assault missions up into these side valleys, almost like little miniature versions of what we think of as you know Vietnam era search and destroy missions. But you know it's several hundred guys getting into helicopters and being dumped into little landing zones up in the mountains and then going and trying to find the enemy and kill them. Um, and this once in a while will net some firefight where you kill a bunch of enemy, maybe a lot of enemy, maybe a hundred enemy. Um, and sometimes in the, in the context in which it happens, it can seem like, okay, this has created some breathing room now uh, for us to do what it is that we need to do in the valley. You know, um, we've killed a lot of enemy, now attacks are down, now we can talk to the elders more, we can build the road, um, things like that. But it never lasts. Um, and in fact, sometimes just by the timing of the, the cyclical way, seasonal way that the, the fighting happens, 
it can be very easy to assume that your operations are having an effect that may in fact just be the effect of the enemy going home for the winter to Pakistan. Um, uh, so you, something that you see recur in the Korangal, for instance, is um, units as they get through the winter and they get into spring and attacks don't go back up again immediately, the units think, okay, well, we really, we've turned the corner. We've we kind of, we've, we really have, have inflicted serious losses on the enemy and this fighting season isn't like last fighting season. And that's the spring. And then over the summer, a new, a new rifle company rotates in and no sooner has the old company left and the new company arrived than the enemy starts slamming them because the enemy is just waiting it out. Um, and it's not obvious that that's happening uh, in the kind of, on the time scale that these units are rotating on. And there's not a lot of people, there are some, but there are not a lot of people who are watching on a longer time scale and trying to, you know, ensuring that these kinds of lessons get captured and, and, uh, and provided to the commanders making the decisions. I mean, what's astonishing, the air assault missions are almost the, the, the real um, most stark example of this, where it's a reader, you're, you're, you're reading and at first when they start doing this, you think, okay, maybe that's a tactic, it makes sense to try it. And then as the war drags on, you think to yourself, like, they've tried these, they, they don't work, they know they don't work, you know, we've tried it for four or five years running, now why do they keep doing this? What's astonishing to me is that as individuals, it's clear that the military leaders there in, in the Pesh are able to adapt. They learn, they change and evolve over the course of the deployment, um, but they seem unable, the army as an institution seems unable to learn these lessons year to year. Um, and in fact, what's really amazing is that even when you get to the later stages of the war, you have company commanders, you have battalion staff officers who had served in the Pesh as lieutenants, they know that this stuff doesn't work and then they've got like brigaded division staff calling for these huge air assault missions that are fruitless. I mean, what is your take on sort of what is the lesson here about the army's ability to, to learn these lessons as an institution over time? It's not good. Um, uh, the, the army has not shown a huge amount of, you know, ability to capture lessons um, in Afghanistan. And often uh, something that I was, did not know before going into this book, um, but found fascinating is the degree to which um, there are other, you know, other actors who, the, other than the big institutional army that kind of have stepped in to try to fill that gap, to try to be the institutional knowledge reservoir. Um, so you know, one example is there are guys from the, the asymmetric warfare group, which is a unit that the army is now disbanding, um, but it was a unit of um, special operators and contractors, typically uh, the contractors being, you know, retired, very experienced special operations guys um, who would, try to go in there and they, they would go back to Kunar again and again and again, and they would do the same in other places like Mosul and Ramadi. Um, and they would try to help the units get through the transitions um, by staying with them beyond, you know, the two week overlap period that the unit has with the guys they're replacing um, and, and trying to just trying to fill that void, spread, you know, allow more of the lessons to kind of percolate into the unit uh, than were, than the, the, the sort of flawed transition process was able to capture. Um, and, you know, the Army has made a variety of efforts to try to fix this problem. Um, they tried sending units back to the same places again, you know, um, but they just, it, it, every one of these efforts has, has really has failed, um, at least in the conventional Army. Um, Special Operations Forces have had, I think, greater success at it, uh, in, in part because they, they are able to kind of have the luxury of, um, you know, going back to the same place more reliably year after year after year. Um, and you, you see that with the Ranger Battalions going endlessly rotating through Afghanistan. Um, 
but yeah, conventional units, um, you know, once in a while you get a unit that goes back to the same place, but even then it's not, it's not really the same people in the unit. In some cases it is, you know, you've got NCOs who were there last time. You've got some company grade officers who were there last time, but the battalion commander wasn't, um, you know, his battalion staff weren't. Um, so it's really not, it's, it's, it's not like the same unit with the same experience from the first time is going and applying its lessons again. Yeah. The, um, the decision, Army's decision to disband asymmetric warfare group is just beyond, it makes my head want to explode. Like, I don't know why the army doesn't think that it needs to learn lessons in future conflicts. Like, why would that be? That's like, no, nah, that's not important anymore. Like that's, yeah. we're done, we're done with learning. Um, or with tactical knowledge, that's not on the ground. Tactical knowledge is not going to be relevant in future wars. Um, anyways, um, we've got some great questions coming in. I want to encourage people to submit questions through the Q and A at the bottom of the toolbar. Um, let me take the first one. So um, I'm going to kind of paraphrase here, and then we'll we'll push the question out to participants so they can see the the full question. But you know, Wes, one of the things that comes out in the book is there's these two parallel wars being fought. Right, the book is mostly about the conventional army troops, and then there are Marines and, and some um, special forces troops that kind of play a role in this, sort of the battle space owners, if you will. But then there's JSOC, they're just like doing their own thing, right? And uh, can you talk about kind of that dynamic um, and how that unfolds throughout the course of the war? Yeah, so this is something that unfolds very starkly in the patch um, because there always remained kind of a, a counterterrorism interest in the patch. So the CIA and JSOC, the Joint Special Operations Command, remained persistently interested in Kunar and Nuristan throughout the course of the war because there were these Al-Qaeda figures who were known to be up there. Uh, so, you know, whereas in other parts of the country, Sangin or Zari or somewhere in Kandahar or Helmand, you could go for a long time kind of without the counterterrorism aspect of the war showing its head. Uh, in the patch, the counterinsurgency and counterterrorism or kind of the daytime war of the conventional units who patrol the area and try to get to know people and build up the Afghan forces versus the nighttime war of the rangers and seals who come in and do raids. Um, it's very stark, uh, the ways that these two threads um, uh, often conflict with each other. There are, there are moments in the war when they support each other, when uh, you know, a, a JSOC task force commander uh, makes the decision, okay, we're going we're gonna to sort of bend this night raiding machine that we've developed and we're going to use it to hit the targets that the infantry commander on the ground wants and we're going to coordinate with them. Um, but those are more the exception than the rule and it takes a long time to get to that place. Um, and, even, and even when that's happening, even when it's, uh, you know, they're going after targets that are the targets that the, you know, the battalion commander wants hit, the targets on the ground, um, when these special operations forces come in and kill a bunch of people, uh, you know, in, in, in a house in a village, um, even if they've gotten the right guys, it's, it's a mess for the conventional forces to clean up in the morning. Um, now, in some ways, you can say that's a good thing. The conventional force gets to play good cop um, and say, look, this wasn't us. And it wasn't. It was, it was the, you know, the SEAL Trooper of the Ranger Platoon that came in from Jalalabad. Um, but it also, it's, it's, it's a, it can be a, a very difficult dynamic for, uh, for these units to, to grapple with, um, who have been trying to build rapport in these communities. Uh, and then they have either, you know, perhaps a raid gone wrong or a raid that hit the right target, but killed more people than really was necessary. Uh, it, they can really damage the, uh, the relationship that the conventional unit has been building. So U.S. troops are no longer owning uh, ground in these outposts in the patch. What if you talk about the turning point that kind of led to this, what was ultimately a long withdrawal, just like there was a long, really deepening of U.S. involvement there and kind of what tipped the scales? 
Yeah. So again, it was incremental. It was it started with uh, the Weigall Valley in 2007 with the big the ranch house battle and the Battle of Wanat in 2008. Um, the, the Weigall was the first place that they decided to come out of because they realized, you know, we're no longer we're, we're not actually accomplishing the goals uh, up at these little outposts um, that we tried to accomplish, um, went there to accomplish. Next up is the Korangal. It essentially takes a year between when the U.S. military decides that it wants to come out of the Korangal and when it's able to come out of the Korangal. Um, in large part, that's motivated by um, what had uh, outposts that previously had been able to be supplied by road no longer are able to be supplied by road. So they become that much more tenuous uh, and that, you know, gets commander's attention more. Um, the fact that you could lose a helicopter or one of these places. Nevertheless, it, it, takes, it takes a really long time to kind of pitch the idea and line up the resources to get out of there. Again, in part because these, these withdrawal operations are conflicting with these big battalion air assault operations throughout the country in a, com a competition for scarce resources, particularly helicopters. So that's another factor that kind of drags it out. Um, so it's in the spring of 2010, they do come out of the Korangal after a year of kind of deliberation about it. Uh, and then it's... Uh, shortly after that, uh, the battalion that I wound up visiting in 2010, the visit that kind of inspired this book and that's described in the prologue of the book and then later in the book as well, um, this 101st Airborne Battalion is sitting in the valley. Um, they're no longer in the Weigall or the Korangal. They're just in the main valley. And essentially the war that had, had been up in the tributary valleys has now come down to the main valley. And outposts that previously were kind of quiet outposts, backwater outposts where troops could, you know, relax during a rotation away from the, the embattled outposts in the Korangal and Weigal. Now these places are the embattled ones. Um, and the, at, this, at this point, there is no security bubble or ink blot anymore. It's just the, the war is in the villages, the war is on the road. Um, and so the, the battalion commander uh, who, was, who was there at the time, a guy named uh, then Lieutenant Colonel Joe Ryan, uh, now a one-star general back in Kabul on, I believe, his eighth Afghanistan deployment, um, he fairly early in his in his uh, battalion's deployment, and I think his division commander at Bagram was reaching the same conclusion at the same time, um, decided the same logic that applied to coming out of the Korangal now applies to coming out of the Pesh. We don't need to be there. Uh, we're the problem now. Um, you know, kind of all, all the goodwill has all been uh, has has been squandered. We're not we're not we're not solving anything anymore. We're just we're creating the conflict. Um, and again, it takes a long time between the summer of 2010 when these 101st Airborne leaders decide they want to come out of the patch and March, April of 2011, when they, in fact, are able to do it after it has been, you know, has been run up the flagpole to Kabul. Um, there's been another big air assault operation to kind of bloody the enemy again. So it doesn't look like we're just leaving with the, our tail between our legs um, again at a cost in, in both American and Afghan lives. Um, but they do. They find they come out in March and April of 2011. They come out of not all four of the Pesh bases, but three of them. And it's so it's a, you know, a, a pretty mostly withdrawal from the valley. But it's done, even though it took so long, it's kind of done without really the collaboration of the Afghan troops, uh, the Afghan military who are, you know, getting their input to see whether they want to do this thing or not. Um, and what winds up happening is the Afghan government says, we're staying. These, 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 uh, these bases are important to us, even if they're not important to you anymore. Um, so an Afghan battalion is left out at Fob Blessing, and uh, it just it essentially is just cut off. It's unable to fend for itself, and it's on the verge of collapse. And this draws U.S. forces back in again later in 2011. No sooner that they left uh, than they have to go back in uh, on a smaller scale um, and stand up kind of a, a, an advisory presence to get, the, get this Afghan unit back on its feet. Um, and the way they 
execute that mission, you're, you're tempted to think, well, they've been doing it this way all along. Um, this kind of the small scale, you know, advisory presence out at, out at the base, helping the Afghans do things that are within the realm of possibility for the Afghans, rather than dragging them along on big air assaults up into the mountains. Um, you know, could this all have happened sooner? But it, it wasn't until, um, you know, this period later in the war that you're alluding to in 2011, 2012, when there were guys uh, who, who had experience there. Um, you know, there's a, a company commander in particular named Lauren Crow, who was there in 2011 to 12, who had previously been in Kunar and kind of had seen the, the war of the big air assaults and had seen how fruitless it was. Um, and he's a guy who kind of insists on, we're going to do this at this sort of smaller, more reasonable scale out of the Depeche now that we've been drawn back out there. And so that enables them to then withdraw again after kind of a year of helping get this Afghan unit back on its feet, um, back to where it had been before we pulled out. So another question um, from the participant here. Um, so the discussion thus far has painted a fairly futile picture of these bases and U.S. involvement there. Um, this may be, in fairness, a reflection of my perspective. Um, I, don't, I don't want to put that on U.S., but um, you know, the question to you is, you know, were there any positive or lasting effects from kind of U.S. involvement in the patch? Um, what's your take? The Afghan government controls the Pesh Valley today in the sense that they control the road, they control the district centers. Um, so there, there is a, um, you know, a, a ribbon of government control stretching out through that valley. Um, you go off that ribbon and it's all controlled by the Taliban. Um, and this is in a province where there really, there really was not extensive Taliban control before 9-11. Um, there are, there are roads that have been built that are very beneficial for the people who live there. Um, these roads are also, they're collapsing and falling into states of disrepair because they were built in ways that were not um, sustained, you know, capable of being sustained by the Afghan government. So, I mean, I think, um, yeah, yeah, there are tangible benefits that have been brought to um, probably not really to the people in the tributary valleys. Those, the, the benefits have dissolved there for the most part. Uh, but yes, that have been brought to you know, the main, the main Petch Valley, you know, there are, there are schools and clinics that weren't there before. Um, I, I don't know whether any, any of those things will last. Um, can you think, another question from the group, can you think of any set of military tactics or a different strategy or approach here that would have resulted in a better outcome, either in the Pesh or more broadly, how should we think about maybe the rest of the country? Yeah, I mean, it's tempting to think that, look, if everybody had kept doing what that good Green Beret team had been doing in 2004, things would have worked out. I don't think that's true. Um, although it's, it, as I say, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an appealing counterfactual to think, well, look, if the other Green Beret team hadn't started poking the bear in the Korangal and it had kept focusing on, you know, building the little ink blot up around Nongalam, um, I think maybe things would have gone better for a while. Um, but that first Green Beret team was also, it was operating in a, uh, it had a grace period. It was, pe people were not fed up yet. Um, this is when these units are out there fighting it's war and people die including civilians uh, inevitably no matter how well um no matter how disciplined or well prepared or how well meaning um these american units are they wind up killing civilians um that green beret team's captain kills a civilian inadvertently a completely good faith mistake he, he shoots a dog that's coming at him and it ricochets the bullet goes through the dog ricochets off a rock and, and hits a hits a shopkeeper square in the forehead and this is the spring of 2004, and essentially the town forgives and forgets. Um, they say, look, this is, this is Commander Ron, this is a good guy, we know him, we know it was a good faith mistake. Um, that kind of forgiving and forgetting is a lot easier to do with the first guy killed in a mistake um, than the 10th or the 15th um, 
as more and more of these units rotate through and commit and make their own good faith mistakes. Um, so I, I do think that, um, I mean, if, if there had been a way to, uh, to go out there and accomplish something quickly, get, get, get an Afghan military force on its feet quickly, I think by virtue of it being quick, perhaps it could have been more successful than uh, this kind of the, the, this half-life that the, that the conventional presence had there over the years that eventually just wore out its welcome. You know, one of the things that's remarkable reading the book is you bring in a lot of perspectives of the Afghans who are on the other side of some of these, sometimes these same firefights, right? Um, you know, how, one, can you talk a little bit about the process of how you did that? And then what surprised you the most when you were getting kind of their perspectives on the book? Um, yeah, so the, the Afghan perspectives came from a variety of different ways. Um, you know, interpreters were incredibly valuable resources um, because really what, I'm, what I was trying to do was gather Afghan perspectives on the Americans that they had seen come through. So I would ask, you know, I would ask an interpreter who had worked for uh, Colonel Cavoli and then Colonel Oslin and then Colonel Jenkinson to kind of compare and contrast the units and their commanders and talk about differences among them that may not have been perceptible to those commanders who I'm also interviewing uh, or, or the units themselves. Um, you can, similarly, you know, district, district governors, district officials um, who worked very closely with the Americans over the years, um, A&A officers who, who I went and visited again uh, in the patch after they were no longer receiving as much American support. Um, these are guys who kind of, they had seen all these American units come and go and they have a long, a long view. Um, that they can that they can talk to you about, which was incredibly valuable. And then also, I would, um, especially the last reporting did, trip that I did for the book, where I was not able to get back up to Kunar because, in, in part, because at that point the Islamic State had showed up in, in the Pesh Valley, and that was created a whole new wrinkle to the security situation. Um, but I was able to talk to a lot of um, a lot of people, either bringing them down to Kabul uh, to come and talk about their experiences in the places where they're still living, um, or just uh, people who are kind of coming down from Taliban controlled areas like the Weigal Valley uh, on various types of business, you know, just, they come back to Kabul often on a, you know, a 10 day pass from the Taliban um, to go visit their parliamentarian, which is an interesting dynamic, right? That you've got, uh, they're kind of relying on two governments at once and both governments are making accommodations to the fact that they are relying on the other, the other government. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, people, people who are kind of leaders in their communities um, often were the people who interface most directly with the Americans um, and had, uh, these kinds of perspectives they could share. Um, all, I mean, very interestingly to me, often these also were older people who had, uh, who had dealt with the Soviets as well. Um, and so that was something that was really fascinating to me was hearing, um, hearing Afghans compare and contrast their experiences with the Americans and the Soviets. Um, there's, a, there's an example early in the book of, a, of a, a Petch Valley elder who's talking to me about his experience with the Americans and talking about his frustrations with American troops early on detaining the wrong people, killing the wrong people, acting on false intelligence. Um, and he, before kind of launching into this critique, he almost, uh, he, he, he puts a big caveat in front of it. He says, essentially, I know they meant well. Um, and they weren't like the Soviets who his, you know, initial experience of the Soviets was Soviet advisors being president for a bona fide massacre of, you know, hundred plus um, men and boys. Um, so he makes this comparison. He's like, look, I know, I know the Americans weren't, Americans were nothing like that. Nevertheless, they made mistakes. Um, then to kind of contrast that, I mean, there's, a, there's another uh, a, a Weigel Valley elder whose voice is uh, included at the, the end of the book um, who makes a, a kind of a less favorable comparison in which he says, basically, you know, unlike the Americans, look, the Soviets were godless and wrong about everything and we hated them. 
Um, but the Soviets built stuff that lasted longer, um, you know, roads in particular. Now, I can't vouch for whether that's uh, something that's true or if it's that he, this is sort of the way he perceives it, just, you know, seeing a lot of recent American road projects fall by the wayside, promises unfulfilled, um, roads washed out by the rain. But that was his perception was um, he, uh, although he had sort of loathed the Soviets in a way that he did not dislike the Americans, um, uh, Americans had made more promises that they had not followed through on. That's fascinating. Um, so there's kind of a surprise ending to the book that like I wasn't expecting where there's this twist about U.S. involvement in the Pesh at the end. Maybe could you talk about what does U.S. involvement look like there over the last say, couple, just, you know, year or two? Yeah. So over the last couple of years, um, uh, you know, during during the Trump administration. So in, in 2017, um, uh, the Trump administration committed more forces back to Afghanistan. Part of this was as part of this you know, miniature surge in forces, we started sending small numbers of advisors back up to Kunar, not to live there, but to do kind of you know, visits of a few days or a few weeks uh, to help the Afghan government um, with artillery and air support and things like that as it's going about its offensives in Kunar. Um, but what we're actually helping them do um, in, these, in these offensives in 2018, 2019, you know, into 2020 was um, not fighting the Taliban, but fighting the Islamic State. That's who, that's who the Afghan government was, uh, was fighting at that point, going into valleys like the Korangal, the Shuriak, where Americans used to fight the Taliban. And now it's the Afghan government trying to root out Islamic State. Uh, and interestingly, the Taliban is also fighting the Islamic State in these same places. So there is this alliance of convenience um, that is created uh, between the Afghan government and the Taliban in, in Kunar, even as they are at each other's throats, waging an unbelievably bloody war against each other everywhere else in the country. Um, in Kunar, they are cooperating with each other um, against the Islamic State. And the United States kind of gets in on this cooperation in a, a subtle way, um, if you can call, if you can never call airstrikes subtle, but um, they, uh, the, the Special Operations Task Force out of Bagram um, for a period in 2019 and into 2020 leading up to the Doha talks um, was actually using um, its same old intelligence tools that it has always used to listen in on the Taliban and understand the Taliban um, and target the Taliban. It was using those same tools in this specific area of Kunar to figure out what the Taliban needed in its day-to-day -day fight against the Islamic State. To figure out, for instance, okay, the Taliban, you know, they're, they're crossing the line in X Valley um, at X time tomorrow morning, and it'll help them if we take out Y Islamic State machine gun nest. Um, which is, I mean, you know, they're not, it's not like these guys are, it's not like you've got JSOC guys talking to the Taliban um, and they may wind up, you know, then targeting that same Taliban commander who they've been helping. They may wind up targeting him two days later after he's cleaned the Islamic state out of the village. Um, but it, yeah, it's, it's certainly a strange, uh, it's certainly a strange twist that, uh, you know, I think a lot of U uh, S veterans of the area can come away with queasy feelings about. Yeah. I, I, um, I had, you know, heard some rumblings about this, but hearing it, seeing it all unfold is quite remarkable. The Taliban Air Force—they refer to themselves, sort of, I guess, you know. Yeah, that was the uh, joke. That was the joke within a particular yeah. cell in the right. task force was that um, <laughs> they called this team that was doing this targeting. They called them. They joked that they called them the Taliban Air Force. Yeah, well, glad people are able to sense of humor. It's, it's just—it's a fascinating, interesting um, kind of twist, you know. Um, I guess, you know, it's interesting reading this, um, and you kind of alluded, I'd spent a, a sliver of time really early in the war before things really had gotten bad in this. But for those of us who spent time um, 
in in the Pesh or that surrounding regions or in, the, in Afghanistan more broadly. It's not just a book about a war; it's a book about our war. Um, and it was it was uh, really quite an experience reading it. I'd be curious: what are some of the reactions of the service members that you interviewed about it after the fact, as they reflected on their time? Because the war's now been so long for many of them; they've had time to have some distance, really, from their deployments. Yeah, I mean, some of the most interesting perspectives to me uh, were guys who were still in uh, and who have continued to go back over and over again. Um, and because I was working on this book for such a long time, I kind of had the luxury of being able to talk to, um, you know, current officers as they have moved up the ranks and gone back over and over again, whether that's in the Ranger Regiment or in conventional units. Um, uh, and in some cases, gone back to the same parts of the country over and over again. And you, you, you would see people's perspectives change. Um, you, you would see guys who, you know, when they came back in 2011 from their deployment, um, kind of thought about it in one way, thought they had accomplished X, Y, and Z maybe two more deployments later, kind of thinking, okay, well, that, that was pretty fleeting, what we, what we accomplished. Um, there's, a, there's a guy who appears in the book named Dan Kearney, um, who's a, now an army colonel, but was a captain in the Corngall Valley in 2007. Um, and he, he describes, um, uh, the way he puts it is that he was drinking his own Kool-Aid. He was, um, he was, you know, he was sort of touting the progress that the, that the unit was making to his own men to keep their morale up. So they didn't think that they were doing something pointless. Um, and he was, and he was, and he believed it. I mean, he, he believed that they were making this progress, but, you know, talked to him a few years later after a few more Afghanistan rotations. And the way he put it was there, what we, there wasn't a security bubble. We, we were talking a big game about the security bubble, uh, but we were not even able to protect what was under our own noses. We could not even protect as far as our eyes could see. Um, well, thank you. It's, it's painful. It's a, um, we're unfortunately out of time, but it is a fabulous book um, about heroism and heartbreak. Um, thank you all for joining us today. Please check out the book, The Hardest Place. It's available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, everywhere you can find books. I'd encourage you to check it out. Um, and thank you, Wes, uh, for joining us today. And thank you for writing this exceptional book. Thanks so much, Paul. It's, uh, it's awesome to talk to you. And I really appreciate your taking the time both to chat with me and to, to read the book. Thank you. Uh, thank you all and take care. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.